You know, uh, have you ever wanted God to show up to you in a really tangible, tactile, visual sort of way? Oh yeah, right? Absolutely. We're, we're going through something in our lives. We're saying, God, would you just, I need you to appear and show yourself to me. Or maybe it's uh, in a moment of doubt and frustration, saying, God, I don't even know if you're out there. Are you there? Are you listening? I need something, something tangible. I want to see you. I, can you just show up, like right here, right now, and let me see you. Let me see who you are. I think all of us have probably at one point or another wanted that in some way, shape, or form, which is why when I've read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, it stops me dead when Lewis says, people who say they just want to look in God's faith, face are the ones who are only playing with religion. They don't understand what it means to see God in that way. Did you catch it in, in the Christmas reading? Normally, we, I mean, we think of Christmas as this happy, celebratory time, right? And, and it is, absolutely. But how did it start for the shepherds? Well, with boredom. But after the boredom, how did it go for the shepherds? They were, they were terrified when God, and not even God, just his messengers appeared in the sky. They were terrified. And this is consistent throughout all of Scripture. When God shows up, people fall down in fear. Always without exception. There's uh, one story where uh, one of the prophets says, God, I, I just, I just want to see you. Like, and so God you know, is, is at the mountain. This is Elijah, I believe. And, and you know, at first, there's, there's a big earthquake. There's a big fire. There's a great wind. And a mountain is falling apart in God's presence. And then there's the still, small voice, right? Why do you think God sent those other things first? It was so Elijah wouldn't be confused and say, oh, God's only a still, small voice. God's more than that. We need a God who's more than that. Is a still small voice really all that we need uh, when Hamas and Israel are at war? Is a still small voice the only thing that we need when the towers fall in New York? Is a still small voice the only thing that we need when we are so close to death or sitting at the deathbed of our loved ones? Or do we need the one whose ringing voice raises the dead as well? The shepherds are afraid because to meet God is a fearful thing. Not because God isn't good, but because he's too good. Not because God doesn't love you, but because he is so powerful. Have you ever maybe had a, a, a person in your life, maybe it's, it's someone you've admired for a long time, and you finally meet them in person? And how does that feel? I mean, are, are you like, hey, man, this is so great. I'm so glad to see you. Or maybe are you at a loss for words? Uh, I remember uh, one of, my, one of my, biblical, my theological heroes is N.T. Wright. And if you've been here a while, you've probably heard me tell this story before, but I, I had an opportunity to meet N.T. Wright. I felt so, uh, uh, so bold because I, a friend of mine was studying under him for his Ph.D., and I said, John, you think I could meet N.T. Wright? And he's like, he loves doing that. Yeah, here's his email address. And like, I can't just send N.T. Wright an email. Like, he'll be like, who's this person, you know, daring to contact me and ask that if he can buy me a cup of coffee? 
It was wonderful. He actually responded. He's like, I'd love to get a cup of coffee with you. Who are you again? No, it doesn't matter. Let's get some coffee. And we went out. We had this, this uh, amazing, like, he, was, he gave me an hour, but really it was more like two. And we had this conversation. It was so incredible. And at the end, you know, we're walking back, and he's meeting some other people. And I say, you know, Dr. Wright, before we, before we go, can I get a picture with you? Right? And he says, why do people always want pictures with me? It's like, because it's your, your N.T. Wright. <laughs> I know most of you are like, who? But that's okay, all right? <laughs> it's important to me. And I wasn't myself. You know, it was, it, was, it was a little bit of a scary thing. And how much more glorious is God than N.T. Wright? I wonder if N.T. Wright could hear me speaking this morning, what he would think of this analogy. <laughs> of course, every time people meet God or even as angels in Scripture, they fall down in fear. And every time they do, God says, what did he say to the shepherds? I feel really embarrassed because I have a Bible up here somewhere that tells me the answers and I don't have it with me. But the angel says to the shepherds, do not be afraid. When Daniel falls down before the angel in his vision and, and he has no strength left in him, the angel doesn't say, yeah, that's where you belong. But he touches him and returns strength to him. God loves to say, do not be afraid. But let's not, let's not get confused. God has to say it. We can't decide it. Because that's who he is. But why does God take away our fear? And this is part of, we're going to get to Christmas here, believe it or not. But why does God take away our fear? Well, in, in our Isaiah passage that we were reading this morning, it says this, Jacob which is another way of speaking of all the people of Israel. Jacob, whom I have chosen, I took you from the ends of the earth, from nowhere, from its farthest corners I called you, and I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you, and I have not rejected you. And God is saying this after the armies of Babylon have ravaged all of the nations surrounding Judah and Judah itself, the remaining two tribes of Israel after the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom, is about to be swallowed up by Babylon. And God says to them, even in the midst of what is happening, you are my servant. I have chosen you and I have not rejected you. Sometimes I think we get offended. Well, God, God who's God to be chosen for me? Right? Who's, who's God to say, I'm going to make you part of my people? Because then, doesn't that mean he could also say, eh, I might not make you part of my people? But what does God do with his choice? I have chosen you, and I have not rejected you. Folks, there is no one like this in the entire world. Every single one of us will get to a place where if someone bugs us long enough, we're going to reject him. I don't care how deeply you love that person. And God is not like that. When God chooses, he chooses forever. He never repents of his choice. God tells us, do not fear, because he has chosen his people. And he's not going to change his mind. God helps us because our smallness doesn't deter him. As a matter of fact, he loves our smallness so often. 
Remember what it says in, in verse 14 of the Isaiah passage? You probably caught it because we don't usually speak to each other this way, and it seems weird that God spoke to us this way, but he says, you worm, Jacob, little Israel. I don't think he said it quite in that tone of voice, by the way. I think he's actually bringing out what they already know about themselves. Here comes Babylon tromping through, destroying everything, and we're like a worm before them. We've got nothing. We can't resist them. And God says, I know. And isn't it good for God to say, I know that that's true? How terrible would it be if God's like, I've decided you're all grown up now, and I'm done. You provide for yourself now. You take care of your own problems. I'm sick of it. I've had enough. You know, if you, if you haven't grown beyond being a worm by now, you're never going to grow beyond being a worm. I give up. No, God says, I know who you are. I know how big your problems are. And I know how small your resources are. And I love you, little Israel. That one's a little more friendly. Oh, little Israel, you know, as opposed to like, you worm. But in any case, it tells us God knows who we are. And he doesn't turn us away for that reason. God loves helping the people who are small and weak. And James, uh, the book of James in the New Testament, James says that, you know what true religion is? It's taking care of the orphans and widows and not letting yourself be dragged away into whatever evil the world's loving today. Why does James say that that's true? It's because that's what God cares about most of all. You know who the orphans and widows are? They are the most vulnerable people in James's society. They are the littlest, the smallest, and the most overlooked. And God says, I want you to care about them as deeply as I do. God loves helping those who are small and weak. God's choice of us has nothing to do with our abilities and strength. In Deuteronomy 7.7, it says, It was not because... Israel, you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. God chose you because he loves you and because he keeps his promises. And it's because of God's choice of us that we are able to stand in his presence. We are able to stand in the rest of our lives. At the end of our Isaiah passage, verses 15 and 16, it says, See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp, with many teeth. Now, some of you out there being farmers know what a threshing sledge is a lot better than I do. But he then talks about, you will cross the mountains and they will bow down in front of you. You will have the strength to make them level. It's because of God's choice that we can stand in the world and in his presence. Now, these are good promises. And it's good to know that this is how God thinks of us and this is what he does. But something special happens on Christmas morning. Really, even before that, when Jesus is conceived. Uh, I love the story in, in John where Jesus walks on water, right? I think everyone loves this story, right? It sounds so cool, and whenever we see water, I think there's part of our imagination. It's like, can I walk on that too? I'd love to see somebody walk on this water. And, and we need to know the context here, though, because uh, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 people. 
right? He's, he had a few loaves of bread, a couple of fish, and he feeds 5,000 people with it. And the Gospel of John says that when the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And do you think that might have been a little disappointing for the disciples? Like, Jesus, where are you going? <laughs> they want to make you king. Think of all the good you can do. Isn't this what God wants for your life? And Jesus is, no. No, that's, that's not the plan and purpose God has for my life. Not in this way. I will be king, but not at the will of the mob. And his disciples, I guess they must have been disappointed. And then it just, it doesn't explain why, but his disciples go down to the lake in the evening and they get off to a boat and they start rowing across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. I think John wants us to ask the question. There actually, if you look at the other Gospels, we get some more information here. But I think John intends for us to ask the questions, are the disciples leaving Jesus? Because they're disappointed by the choice that he's made. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he chose those disciples. And he's not letting them get away so easily. So he starts and steps onto the water and keeps on walking. And the disciples, you know, they've been rowing for miles and they've been rowing for hours. And Jesus, like it's no big deal, catches up to them miles away, walking on the water. And when the disciples see him, what do they feel, everybody? Fear. Who is that? I've never seen someone walk on the water toward my boat before. And I'm pretty sure it's not a good thing. I think you and I would probably come to the same conclusion. If we're super spiritual, we might go, oh, I wonder if that's Jesus. But the disciples don't have this story. They have no idea, and they're terrified. And what does Jesus do? Well, it, it says uh, that Jesus speaks to them, and how does he comfort them? He says, it is I. Don't be afraid. And that's different. That's different than what God said in the book of Isaiah. That's different than what God does in the rest of the Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament, you know, people fall down in fear before God, and, and God's like, do not fear. But he doesn't explain how, right? And, and I think there must have been a sense in which, as a matter of fact, we had an Advent video a few years ago, the shepherds in the fields. I don't know if you remember that. And, you know, the angels, the, the angels are off camera, probably because they're too expensive to put on camera. And the, the shepherds, like, run away when the angels start to speak, and they, they hear the angels say, don't be afraid. And I love the skit guys because one of the shepherds says to the other shepherd, you don't be afraid. It's like, right? Because is that really going to make you, don't be afraid. You ever seen like a really scary, scary movie? I hate zombie movies. I have like this weird attraction to them and revulsion from them at the same time because I find zombies absolutely terrifying and yet I want to see the movie. It's like, you know, I, I don't know why. Probably because I'm sick and no good. But in any case, you know, I, I <clears throat> uh, if someone just comes up to me and I'm watching this movie, you know, I'm terrified, and they say, Ian, don't be afraid. I'm like, thanks. That really helps me out. Go get a gun, and then I'll be less afraid. <laughs> but Jesus says, it's me. Don't be afraid. And the disciples welcome him into the boat. Because that's something we never had before. God was always far away, 
always in heaven. God was always terrifying in his holiness. And yet in Jesus Christ, God has been translated into a language that we can approach and understand in ways that we never have before. And the disciples, it says, they were willing to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. They were out of danger. And their, their strife and their trouble, their, their endless rowing was done. Something changes when God comes to us in Jesus. When Jesus demonstrates his power as the Son of God, he is frightening. But when we know who he is, his power, his deity, no longer drive us away in fear. Same gospel, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the one and only who comes from the Father. When we meet God, it causes fear, but God doesn't desire us to live in that fear. That's why he sent Jesus to, that, to us, so that when we're fearful, we will always hear you will always see, you will always experience. Do not be afraid.